Welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and on this episode, we're going to explore the past and present of back to school, what it means for businesses and the economy, how it's changed, and how in many ways it hasn't, and obviously how this year is different. And then keeping on the theme of back to school and kids, we're also going to explore marketing to children more broadly. We'll talk to Ed Temke, an expert on the history of children's marketing, on how it has evolved over time, including examples of marketing to children that are ethical and those that aren't, and how now more than ever with the access technology provides, how our kids are in many ways more accessible to new kinds of marketing program than they've ever been before. And finally, speaking of technology, we're also going to talk with Bruce Weindrick, History Factory's founder and CEO, about big tech summer adventures with Congress and explore what the industry can learn from historical context. But first, let's dig into the business of back to school. And even as we witness the tragedy and crisis playing out in Lebanon and now the terrible violence that has occurred this week in Chicago, for many of us, how our kids are returning to school is really top of mind. And for some of us, that means kids are going back to school after a very long summer. But for many of us, whether our kids are in college or whether they're in preschool or somewhere in between, virtual life at home continues. And these major shifts in how our society is functioning and the disruption of our annual patterns of behavior, of course, is directly impacting our economy. One of the things that I was a bit surprised by is that some analysts, including a study last month by Deloitte, as well as a survey by the National Retail Federation, are expecting that back-to-school spending in the U.S. is actually going to be flat or even better than it was last year. In fact, the National Retail Federation has forecast that American consumers will spend a record $101.6 billion on back-to-school shopping this year. And that includes spending for both uh, K through 12 students as well as college students. And honestly, I was surprised by that. Um, but what's not surprising is that that spending is going to look a lot different in terms of what people are buying and when. People, as you would imagine, are expected to buy later into the back-to-school season than typical. And of course, they're buying different stuff. Backpacks and new clothes are expected to be weighed down. Uh, but things like computers, headphones, and other accessories and decor for all of those bedrooms that are being converted into classrooms are expected to be way up. To that point, that same NRF survey found that 36% of those surveyed expect to buy laptops in preparation for their kids going back to school. And the back to school season is critical uh, for the economy and for many retailers. It's traditionally second only to the holidays as the most important time of the year for retailers. And that's because year in and year out, it's reliable and steady. To that point, we went back and looked at catalogs at the Hagley Library and at different sources online. And one of the things that I was struck by is how little has changed. Whether it was 2019 or 1919 or 1980 or 1880, the products are pretty consistent in category, if not style. Shoes, clothes, and supplies including pencils, crayons, notebooks, and before that, quills, chalks, and slate when paper was less readily available. 
And many of the brands and products that we still know today and knew when we were growing up, like Crayola and uh, Crayola crayons and Ticonderoga pencils, for instance, have been around for well over 100 years. The Smithsonian's American History Museum's Division of Home and Community Life has an education collection of classroom materials ranging from the early 1700s to the late 20th century, and it's just remarkably consistent. Um, two interesting things that I discovered was first, unbeknownst to me, crayons are not one and the same. What we think of today as a crayon was a wax crayon, but crayons also referred to what we would now call colored pencils as well as colored chalk. And secondly, what we all know as a pen knife is called a pen knife because it was used to sharpen quills when the tip broke. Pen knives were mainstays of students' pencil boxes. Of course, today most kids would get into big trouble for bringing a pen knife to school, but I never made that connection on why a pocket knife was also called a pen knife. So there you have it. So this year is different. Uh, and it's also different because how our kids are going to be marketed to is going to continue to shift to be increasingly online and through their devices. In fact, a coalition of civil rights, child welfare, and health organizations have called upon the government to protect children from junk food marketing on online learning platforms that are increasingly being used by school children during the pandemic. McDonald's, Kraft Heinz, and Kellogg have committed to stop advertising on these platforms after being criticized for advertising cereal, Lunchables, and Happy Meals on them. And companies like Verizon uh, are providing tools and resources such as a section on their website called Parenting in a Digital World which is designed to help parents navigate raising their kids in a time when our kids just have more access to content and marketers have more access to our kids than ever before. So to learn more about the history of marketing to children and how it's evolved, please welcome Ed Temke. Ed is an instructor of courses on media, advertising, and intercultural communication in the Department of Cultural Anthropology and for the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Initiative at Duke University. He is also Associate Editor of Advertising and Society Quarterly, a journal focused on the role of advertising in society, culture, history, and the economy. Hello, Ed. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you, and uh, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll jump in here. Uh, so you've studied the history of, of marketing and advertising, uh, especially from the perspective of uh, children, and um, how might you summarize for our listeners how marketing and advertising to children has uh, changed and uh, evolved over, you know, maybe the last 60 or 70 years in that sort of post-World War II era up to today? Yeah, so I think you've identified the key moment when children become targeted by advertising and marketers. So after World War II, things really explode with that baby boom, um, you know, in the 50s and in the 60s. Um, and then as sort of consumerism really takes off, especially in the 80s, um, you get a lot more, you know, advertising toward kids. And um, I would say for one word um, that, you know, looking at the literature, um, that would summarize all this would be um, more intensity 
um, and perhaps more pervasive and often sometimes more hidden over time, the, the messages that are being sold and basically kids being sold to various products and, and ideas. Yeah, and I, and from your perspective, has it continued to be more intense? I, I, I would have thought, I would have assumed that there's more guardrails and more awareness around this now versus maybe 30, 40 years ago, you know, when I was growing up as a, as a kid of the 70s and yeah. 80s. Um, but it sounds like from what you're sharing, it's just continued to be uh, a, you know, sort of continual pace of, of, of intensifying. Yeah, so I think um, one thing that we'll think about after World War II is, you know, be, would be, you know, television advertising. Um, and then yep. with the, um, you know, significant regulation of television um, towards children in, in 1990 and then since then, um, things have changed on television. So, you know, trying to put an ad for a toy, you know, in the, you know, around the same show that that might have that character in you know like a cartoon um you know yeah. things kind of moved around um but where i think things really change and get more pervasive is is in the digital space so for example there's something called um unboxing where uh, you might have a little kid who would get a new toy sold by a toy company um, and the little kid would get excited and open it up and talk about it and then what you have is other little kids watching that one little kid opening the toy and having fun with it um, and then ultimately, you know, maybe those other kids watching want the toy, or if it's parents who are looking for the best holiday or birthday gift. Um, and so some people don't necessarily see that as a form of advertising and marketing. They see it as just an everyday kid who would be, you know, showcasing a product. And so that's a bit different is that you have, you know, influencers, social media influencers, even, you know, at the, the young ages of, you know, between six and 10. Um, on these videos. And so some might not see that as an ad or a marketing tool, but it certainly is because often, um, especially over time, some of those kids start to get paid. Oh, so the kids actually get paid. Yeah. Some, some do, especially if they get enough uh, followers. Um, so oh, you yeah, can, sure. yeah. So if you get enough followers and then of course the FTC and, you know, they have rules about if it's sponsored, they're supposed to put like hashtag sponsored. Um, but there's still this world where it's, you know, there's in the, in the last year, the FTC has, has come in and said, oh, we need to make sure that the sponsored nature of basically influencers um, talking about products needs to be more regulated or at least um, disclosures are needed. But we're still in this sort of world where, um, you know, the FTC can only monitor so much. So that's where I think things are more pervasive. And also in the world of like online games. So like um, maybe a breakfast cereal has a, a game that's put on the back of its box um, and then kids can go and, you know, hop through the world of Fruit Loop, which ultimately it's a game, but it might be, you know, sponsored, you know, by Fruit Loops. Um, and the same could be for, um, you know, sort of installation of collectible objects. And this isn't something that's new, um, but it becomes more pervasive, I think. Like, so uh, baseball cards. You know, we think of baseball cards as something you want to collect. They become valuable. But ultimately, right. that collectability makes them enticing. Um, the same could be said. I'm, I'm a child of the 80s. So, like, Care Bears, you're not going to get one Care Bear. You're going to get a whole bunch. Or McDonald's um, toys um, in the Happy Meal. You're going to get one, and then you want to collect them all. Um, and so today, things like Shopkins, you know, these little tiny plastic things that look like food, 
um, you know, you have kids getting excited and they want more and more and more of these Shopkins. Um, and if you actually look at the actual price of how much they cost to make versus how much they cost, um, you know, that's, that's, that's maybe another segment. Uh, but uh, kids <laughs> want to collect these things and trade them. And so this, this creates this, you know, and kids don't see that as an ad or a ploy to keep consuming. They see it as this sort of like, you know, collecting and playing. Yeah. And I'm curious then not to kind of go, go too, too far down the rabbit hole on this, this topic, but from your experience, is there sort of any evidence of when uh, children become more impressionable and when they're becoming mm. more sort of consumers themselves in terms of customers versus, um, uh, versus essentially just going to, you know, uh, mom or, or dad or, you know, a grandparent and saying, I want that. Yeah. So your, your question's getting at why are kids targeted even from like before birth? Like, I mean, they're, they're like, you know, parents are advertised to and to anticipate what their kids will wear and, and all of that. And sort of the logic behind it is um, basically you get them young so they can become brand, you know, loyal brand followers. Um, even if they don't know what advertising is. Um, so the research, you know, some different research says, you know, um, you know, when kids can discern an ad from, you know, non-ad or commercial content, it's roughly around the age of eight um, is when yeah. kids can say, oh, I'm being sold to. But for some kids, you know, if they're especially if their parents are sitting them down and talking to them, they might, you know, discern that earlier. Um, yeah. So I think definitely like when they start to realize they're getting sold to, um, they might start to develop those things. So definitely like preteen years, um, especially as social pressures get worse um, in, in school or stronger. Um, this is making me think of something that's called the nag effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Um, this is no. essentially the idea of placing products in a retail environment so kids can see it, um, like candy yeah. or um, the Cornell Food Lab. Um, they showed um, research where um, Basically, the cereal boxes, they have the eyes pointed down, so they're placed on shelves so their eyes are pointed down because if you look someone directly in the eyes, you feel more trust for them. And then adult cereals are more eye level because of, you know, based on the height of kids versus adults. And this nag effect is basically placing products in such a way that kids get enticed, they see it, and then they nag their parents so much or their, you know, the adult that's with them so much that they ultimately buy it. Um, wow. So that's, yeah. I'll never walk down a cereal aisle in the grocery store the same ever again. That's actually a little freaky, but it makes sense. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, so your, uh, your, uh, your answer there actually reminded me of uh, an experience I had growing up uh, in uh, probably the mid 1970s. Um, I was starting to watch, you know, television is, I don't know, maybe a four or five year old. And um, I was starting to sort of hit that phase where I would see advertisements and, you know, there'd be a commercial for a toy. And I was just, mm -hmm. I want that, you know, mommy, I want that. And there was this uh, advertisement with this really catchy jingle for a product called Digger the Dog. And I was sweating Digger the Dog like you wouldn't believe. And um, my mom uh, finally sort of hit a, hit a tipping point with it and sort of sat me down. And to your point about sort of 
differentiating or distinguishing the difference between, you know, sort of regular or educate, you know, entertaining content or educational content versus promotional content, she sort of sat me down and explained to me what a commercial was. And uh, she loves to tell the story that then uh, whenever uh, Digger the Dog would come on thereafter, I would just say, Mommy, they just want our money. <laughs> and I actually, uh, in, in preparation for this discussion, I actually found that jingle, which is catchy as hell, and discovered that uh, I must have been watching Romper Room, uh, a show mm-hmm. that I'd completely forgotten about. And, um, and Romper Room had been purchased by Hasbro. And uh, yeah. Hasbro uh, was basically then um, marketing products and branding the products with the Romper Room branding. And so there was this, you know, direct, you know, correlation between, you know, the, the programming and, and um, product development and advertising, uh, which, as I understood, then um, that specific um, strategy was then um, – um, prevented uh, to some degree, I think, by the uh, the ACT or the FTC. Um, mm-hmm. But um, in any case, uh, it's kind of interesting. But what you've described, what, what's happened over the last 40 years, it sounds, is similar, just far more uh, sophisticated. Yeah. And you're making me think, one of my favorite ads that when I teach about advertising to children uh, related to the nag effect is an ad that comes from Belgium in 2003, um, for a condom company. And the scene shows um, a father and a son and the son basically keeps pulling, like, like I want these sweets, I want these candies. Um, and, you know, the father just puts it back on the shelf and then the kid has a tantrum, he's throwing things around. Um, everybody in the store looks at the kid like he's a maniac. And then all of a sudden, um, the message on the screen says, use condoms. Um, and so they're, you know, wow. they're, they're joking about this condom company. But for me, that represents the nag effect is, the kids screaming and pestering so much, um, you know, that the adult would acquiesce. It's like, okay, if you're going to stop screaming, fine. I will give you the candy. So students yeah. really, that really drives that home. And yeah. that ad actually was banned, or they, they took it off. Um, they, they, had it on, they had it on the air, and then they took it off. But for, for my purposes, it definitely shows the negative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, and that's an interesting point. So, how how does you've described a little bit about the approach of marketing directly to children, which is really yeah. about sort of multi-platform marketing, sort of embedding, mm-hmm. you know, products with uh, programming, which again is really just a more sort of evolved and sophisticated approach. Uh, from my example of Romper Room and Hasbro in the 1970s. Um, as well as obviously influencer uh, marketing through social media, and I—I I mean, I've—I've I've seen a little bit of that. Just you know, my daughter's you know ten and likes to play with you know dolls and American Girl dolls and Barbie, mm-hmm. and there's like a whole world online of yeah. little girls that have created these universes, almost like a sitcom with their dolls, yeah. and. Um, and it's a little creepy, you know, my, my daughter doesn't watch a lot of it, but I, I get it, you know, it's like, it's yeah. like, you know, she, she'll sometimes get absorbed in sitting there and watching another girl play with her dolls. And it's basically mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's basically influencer marketing. It's really interesting yeah. and smart. Um, but what about from the perspective of, of, of parents, as you mentioned before, how, yeah. uh, what's kind of the role um, of, of the parents as a, as a target uh, for, for uh, marketers to children's products? That's a good question. I think the example that you gave about Digger the dog is 
yeah. having conversations with your kids about what they're watching and what messages mean. Um, you know, uh, so there's, there's an organization in San Francisco called Common Sense Media, and they actually focus on providing families, um, you know, or, or, you know, adults, you know, working with kids and even just families and what they do in, within their own family, advice about yeah. media usage. And they have, you know, advice about talking about these things, you know, sitting down and, um, you know, limiting screen time or um, doing different forms of play. And so one critic, uh, Susan Lynn, who is a very prominent psychologist and author, she wrote a book called Consuming Kids. And her concern about, you know, if she were to look at that example of playing with the dolls online is that that sort of basically you're, you're still becoming a consumer in the act of play, which sort of cr- creates a certain type of uh, creativity. And so she is suggesting, you know, like going out and, you know, go outside. You know, I, I remember I, I was sort of, I guess you would call a free range child. You know, it was like, go outside. And when the dinner bell rings, come back. So, I mean, that right. was because I was not in a digital age, but, you know, there was a, right. a point where my parents were like, you need to go out and you need to, you know, play in the woods or something. And so I think it really goes back to um, media and consumer literacy. Um, and having those conversations. And I think that needs to happen in schools too, um, which is also a place where kids are advertised to, and we don't even know it often. Like Scholastic Books, um, great providing books, you know, at a, a reasonable cost is itself a way of selling within the school space. So that's just one yeah. example. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and Common Sense Media is a great resource. It's certainly our go-to uh, when we're trying to evaluate whether our our uh, whether a movie is, uh, is appropriate uh, enough mm-hmm. for, a, for our 10-year-old and our 12-year-old. <laughs> so yeah. certainly a go-to resource for us. Um, so to that point, what, what are some of the kind of key best practices uh, for mm-hmm. marketing uh, brands or products um, to children effectively and ethically? I mean, you know, it, it is kind of a – it's a reality of our society that, you know, there are products that are created uh, for children um, and obviously – organizations have to market them in order to uh, be able to be uh, successful. Um, so it, it is kind of baked into our society that it has to happen in some fashion, I suppose. Um, but what are some of those best practices uh, on doing it in a way that's not sort of overly uh, manipulative or um, creating yeah. an unhealthy environment for kids? Well, I think first of all is understanding the rules and regulations about, you know, sponsoring, you know, kids to unbox toys looking at the FTC best practices and rules and regulations and checking out organizations like Common Sense Media. Um, I think engaging, you know, those best practices. One thing I didn't really get on are sort of the values and the things where kids are, how they're socialized through advertising. I think the representations that are baked into, so not just creating consumers for life in a capitalist society, that's one thing. But the other is what are the values and the sort of futures that kids can see in those ads. So, for example, like, you know, mm. I, I like to show this when I teach about um, gender in advertising, but this, this relates to kids in advertising, is looking at early Barbie doll ads and G.I. Joe ads. So, from you know, Barbie in the late 50s, G.I. Joe going into the 60s and in the 70s, um, is you see, like, this bifurcation between boys and girls. Um, in the earliest Barbie doll 
um, television commercial is basically, uh, you know, a woman singing, you know, from the perspective of a girl. It's like, someday it will be like you. I will emulate all of these beautiful qualities of you. Um, and if, if all the dolls were white. Um, they were all skinny, actually. You know, there's studies that have been done that if that was actually a, a real person's body, she probably would, you know, break in half or wouldn't be able to walk. Um, and so there's these unreal expectations. And if you look at G.I. Joe, this isn't my research, but looking at G.I. Joe over time, he has become like an, like a steroid, like, I don't know, WWF fighter, like ready to jump off of a stage um, with, you know, a bazooka or something. And so part of these ads, um, they're saying certain things about body types, about um, you know, who is considered desirable. And recently Hasbro um, has come out with a, a line of dolls that are gender neutral um, and, yeah. you know, different races and body types and abilities. And I think those are best practices is thinking what is, could be the impact of how kids see themselves? Um, are they seeing themselves in those ads? Um, and then what are the values that are, that are put out there? Yeah, that's really interesting. We did a segment on the pod, uh, maybe uh, two, two or three episodes ago on G.I. Joe. It was his, mm -hmm. I think it was his 58th birthday or something. And we talked about sort of the evolution of him in society and sort of the interpretation. Um, but we didn't, I didn't talk about it. We didn't look at it from the angle of physiology. That's a really interesting, mm -hmm. uh, interesting point that you make. Um, so are there any particular sort of case studies that are recognized in the field as being, um, you know, particularly positive in terms of how, um, you know, companies and brands have um, marketed in an, in an effective, are there any that kind of jump to mind to you that you think are sort of good sort of models or role models, uh, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a child of the 80s, and this is probably, this is going to be my bias. Um, although yeah. there are concerns with, so I'm thinking of Care Bears. So Care Bears, yeah. Certainly was a product, you know, trying to get. I was, kids to I was buy kind them. of expecting you to go. I was expecting garbage fill kids, man. Come on. Well, I do love those. I do have the original <laughs> um, cards with the stickers and all, of, and I still collect those today. Um, so that that marketing did work on me. I think what I mean, you know, maybe you know, I'm not trying to say it's nefarious on the on, on the part of the Care Bear producers, but um, th that toy is rooted in empathy and pro-social behaviors. So mm -hmm. it's it's very positive. Um, and I know some might critique that because, you know, again, it's getting kids to buy more of these stuffed animals and I hunt them down in, uh, you know, thrift shops. I have to get the originals, not the new ones. And an interesting note, if you start looking at the cycle of toys, um, yeah. it's often not just kids who are targeted, but their parents. So there was like a resurgence of strawberry shortcake and Care Bears because those, you know, when those came out in the 80s or earlier, um, now that their parents. If they see the toys that yeah. they had as a kid, they can buy them for their their kids. Um, so that yeah. would be one example. Yeah, you know, and, and the other the other issue. What's your take on the brands that create products for children that are presumably really about building brand loyalty for the long haul? Um, mm. And then I think about, for example, um, John Deere. Um, what's your perspective on on that kind of marketing? Yeah, that's interesting. I grew up in Wisconsin, so I totally understand the John Deere tractor or, you know, things related to farming, right? Because, you know, kids are getting yeah. out, getting dirty, and then, you know, it's, you know, it's a, a John Deere, you know, digger or something or a, a little truck. Um, yeah. I think part of this goes back to 
Um, you know, part of what kids are going through is socialization. Um, you know, when we think of things like schools, like we take a bus, you know, often, you know, like in a rural place like where I grew up, you, know, you take the yellow bus, you have these like set schedules. I mean, we're basically priming kids to be adults. Um, and so sometimes these tools, like maybe the John Deere, like for me, I think we need farmers. So I would be very happy that, you know, a kid today would get excited about farming. You know, I think it's sort of like, what is it? What's the nature of the product? What is the nature of the, and again, that's just a personal opinion, but I think those products are, you know, they have certain values and there's certain, like that has a function, like you're playing like a farmer or, you know, doing something at a yard. Yeah. Interesting. So if you were, uh, so you were, you were out with some friends at a bar and uh, had sort of one, one crazy story to share about uh, kind of a crazy uh, example of, uh, of marketing uh, to kids, uh, anything yeah. comes to mind is just particularly, just completely uh, uh, off the hook insane? Yes. Um, so one of the most <laughs> famous, uh, strangest and egregious campaigns, um, I mean, uh, with Joe Camel. Um, so Joe Camel, you know, Camel cigarettes, you know, we're talking RJ Reynolds, tobacco. Um, in the late 80s, at least in the United States, there, the image of sort of the, the Joe Camel had, you know, he wore this suit. He was very glamorous. Um, there was actually a caricature Camel that was created by a British artist in the 70s. And um, there was a campaign in France, but Joe Camel really took off in, in the 80s. Um, and then into the 90s, and subsequently, Joe Camel had to go away because of all those lawsuits. Um, but why I would talk about this at this, you know, over drinks at a bar, is that part of Joe Camel, um, Joe Camel, um, in 1991, by a journal of the American Medical Association, said that um, kids by age six could identify Joe Camel, um, just, you know, they could associate Joe Camel with cigarettes as much as Mickey Mouse with Disney. So, like, Joe Camel cigarette smoking camel, wearing a, you know, fancy outfit, driving Corvettes, you know, in Hollywood, um, doing all these glamorous things with, uh, you know, on par with Mickey Mouse. And why I would talk about this is that on the side of the cigarette packets, they had these little camel cash dollars. Like they were in different denominations, like one, five, 10, you know, what have you. Um, and this is when my parents still smoked. And I remember as a kid seeing the catalog they got in the mail. And I was like, wow, get this box you can get this thing and so i would be like pushing them to smoke more and then i would take their camel cash and hoard it in this little box that i had eventually it was a camel box a little camel tin and so i was basically pushing my parents to smoke and then of course as i you know got a little older i was like that's awful i was basically making my parents more addicted to the tobacco that they were smoking Um, but ultimately this is a pretty egregious long-term uh, this is one campaign out of a longer um, term uh, effort by the um, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, where um, you know young adults were targeted because they could ultimately, as they matured, they could become you know the next smokers. And there was actually documents in the 70s from that court case in the late 90s that showed that um, explicitly in their memos as they were saying that these would be tomorrow's cigarette smokers. So get them, you know, between, you know, as early as age 14, um, which interestingly, the Joe Camel, um, they estimated that about 33% of all cigarettes sold illegally were for Camel cigarettes at the time of the Joe Camel campaign. So 
that's probably a very long answer. My friends at the bar would probably tell me to stop going on my soapbox rant, but that would be the story that I would tell. Yeah, and hopefully uh, they wouldn't say, hey, I got to go outside and have a smoke now. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> but I take your point. Cool. Well, listen, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to get you uh, back on to talk about uh, that collection of yours sometime. And uh, maybe you and I could have uh, an offline conversation and do some, uh, do some, do some uh, garbage, uh, some garbage belt kid trading. So, uh, exactly, yeah. but, Ed, <laughs> uh, but Ed, thanks so much for, uh, for joining uh, the pod, a fascinating uh, conversation and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Ed for joining us. And before speaking to Ed, I really didn't fully appreciate the scale of influencer marketing. Um, but I've since learned that the world's top earning YouTube star uh, was an, an eight-year-old boy who made $26 million in a single year reviewing toys on a show called Ryan Toys Review. And according to a Pew Research study, 81% of parents allow their kids aged 11 or younger watch YouTube. So again, with our kids home now more than ever, they are accessing apps and online services. And in fact, last year, Google and YouTube paid a record $170 million for illegally collecting personal information about children. And this year, TikTok has been criticized for collecting children's personal information without consent of parents. And Congress is now pushing to raise the ages of content on some online services. Which brings us to our last segment I'm calling How I Spent My Summer by Big Tech and joining us to explore just how unique this new paradigm is in the history of business for businesses, for government, and for all of us is Bruce Weindrick, History Factory's Big Chief. Bruce, how are you? Jason, all good. Uh, lockdown, as usual here in the nation's capital. But other than that, it's good. Month five, I think we're into now. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, the nation's capital, uh, uh, Congress uh, called big tech out and uh, had, I, I believe, the the, the CEOs of, of four of the, the five big tech companies in Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. And uh, it, it seemed like, you know, as Congress sometimes likes to do, uh, they, they kind of treated these guys as, as, as pinatas, um, but for different reasons, interestingly enough, and, and, and both kind of on, on each end of the, the political spectrum. Um, so what, what's, your, what's your take on, on sort of the, the, the challenges that the big tech companies have right now from a regulatory perspective and again, sort of, I've been fascinated by the fact that, you know, you've got these five companies that combined are, you know, have revenue over $900 billion, but they all make their money in distinctly different ways. Um, so it's not like there's one single issue necessarily that, uh, that you know, the federal government is concerned about from a, from a competitive or regulatory perspective. Um, are there any parallels like that in, in other industries? Well, I mean, again, we can go back, and those of us who were trained as business historians, um, antitrust, the antitrust movement, um, is one of those things you, you study from day one. And why not? I mean, you go, you know, you start with railroads, right? 
then you go into oil. All right. And then you keep moving on through all the various big. And that seems to be the, the first thing that there's a comparison. If there is a comparison, they're big and it's they're big and 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 big is a concerning other than that it's really tough for me to make a connection between the 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 earlier ones so i mean when you when you, when you look at you know uh, the monopoly of standard oil or, or a railroad trust or or steel i mean they had market share that was unbelievable when you look at google or you look at facebook it's it's their, their market share is infinitesimal compared to the size of the, the market. So that's the first thing. Second of all, used to used to have monopolistic activity with pricing. Well, these guys aren't charging anything. I mean, they don't charge a consumer a darn thing, right? So, I mean, where where's the parallel there, all right? Basically, uh, if you really want to look at, at really kind of what's driving this, you know, you're absolutely right. There is, there is equity. There is hay to be made by politicians by dragging these guys in front of in front of the uh, in front of the camera. And by the way, let's let's add one other thing. How could you even think of of of, of dragging American companies up when there's a, a parallel universe of the exact same companies, in some cases larger, in China? So how could you possibly be monopolistic? globally because remember steel wasn't global oil wasn't global in those days so you know in reality this has a lot to do with with scoring points uh particularly i think during an election cycle um and uh you know we have a, we also have a new a new element here is how these organizations are being used by politicians as users twitter being Probably the best example of that. That's created an interesting dilemma for them. It used to be that the politicians' relationship uh, with the monopolistic companies, no one knew about. It was under the table with cash. Everyone knew who they were, but that's how the relationships were. Now the relationships are all out in the open, right? So it's it's in, in some ways, it's very, very different. In most ways, it's very, very different. But on the other hand, the way it's being treated by Congress is almost exactly the same. And by the way, you, you look back at some of the earlier, uh, you know, testimonies that, you know, uh, I think it was uh, uh, JP Morgan, when they came in and brought the fellow came in and brought a midget on his knee. It was a photo op because they were making the point that this was his little mini, this was his little mini uh, version of himself. I mean, they used to do Jack Morgan, they used to do stuff like that. There was a lot of theatrics uh, in those days. And that's probably the thing that's most similar today there's a lot of theatrics yeah and, it, and, it, and it's interesting because so, so many of the challenges that it seems these companies are creating to your point are are unprecedented um, but they're also broader broader societal impact issues so it's not necessarily about you know consumer choice and and price control as you noted it's about what are the broader societal implications to essentially these companies enabling other entities to weaponize information. And, and by the way, these Europe has been able to deal with this beautifully. We basically, why we've gotten to this point is we didn't do a lot of data protection that Europe yeah. did much earlier. Okay. So in reality, yeah, you know, the, 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 monsters in all these cases, and they are always portrayed as monsters. 
go all the way back to early, early uh, cartoons, you know, editorial cartoons, these many headed serpent monster things. These monsters are, 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 are created by us. I mean, they are created by, by what we, by what we need and what we use. And these guys have just responded to it. And you're right. They are directly linked to the growth of, you know, society, uh, our issues about privacy, our issues about particularly right now, authenticity and fake news. I mean, those are all, if you notice, those are all the things they're talking about. Yeah. And and how does this compare to other challenges the tech industry specifically has had uh, in the past uh, with respect to, um, you know, the, that sort of uh, dynamic between uh, big tech and government here in the States? Yeah, well, you know, you have to talk about the beginning of tech and probably the first really big tech uh, antitrust suit uh, would have been IBM. Uh, and uh, and that thing dragged out uh, from 1969 to 1982, almost 13 years. All right. And and uh, of course, then the next one that would have followed it would have Microsoft, and that one dragged on uh, for a long time. So so so, what do they have in common? What they tend to have in common is people are trying to apply a solution that they tried to apply to IBM and to Microsoft. That never even really got applied. So you're hearing things like, break them up, break up IBM, make them sell off this, break up Microsoft, make them sell this, make them sell that. So what looks the same to me is the solutions are trying to apply the same solution. Oh, by the way, the bells, same thing. The bell would have been, I would have considered, I would have considered the bell almost very similar that way. Uh, it, particularly in the later years, it was becoming a, a major tech issue. But having said that, the solutions may look the same that they're suggesting. But by the way, in many cases, those were solutions that were proposed. And because of the length of the time it took to actually get the, uh, the uh, action settled, they never even really happened. And but by the way, by the time they happened, they weren't even relevant anymore. IBM's pricing wasn't even an issue anymore by 1981 or 82, where it had been in, 19, uh, in 1976. So. Therefore, I think the most interesting point is the speed in which things develop today. Okay, what can happen to Facebook in six months, all right, could completely change the whole notion of what these guys are trying to excise from Facebook. So the speed of the change in the market is what's, I think, going to hopefully enable them to come to grips with, settle with, and move on faster, the same way they did with IBM, the same way they did with Microsoft, and let them move on. A lot of people are looking, of course, at uh, Bill Gates's attitude during the, during the Microsoft uh, suit uh, as being you know, provocative, and that perhaps you know, they, should go to, they should go to school on that. But I would argue uh, time is on their side, and time is moving much quicker now than it ever did. So if I were kind of a betting man, I would, I, I would bet that there's, there's, no, there's no way that you're going to see any, any, major, any major action taken against any of these companies. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of ironic based on what you're sharing as well, that the notion of breaking them up in some respects may make the problems worse than they already are, right? Because yeah. if the challenge is not ostensibly creating more competition in the marketplace, in the marketplace, 
but it's about, you know, how to manage things like the weaponization of, of information. Suddenly having four Twitters and, and, and four Facebooks doesn't feel like it's going to make that an easier challenge to, 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 to manage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, let's not forget, you know, when, when the advantage that IBM and even Microsoft had back in those days, and the reason to break them up was to be able to create, you know, these more manageable. Well, guess what? You, you could bust them up all day long and there's going to be another 300 coming out of Silicon Valley in the next two years. So it doesn't, yeah. at that point, it doesn't, doesn't really matter anymore. The, the, the key is, is to be able to have in place, and that's why I mentioned Europe, to have in place a, a regimen, a series of laws that enable these companies to perform well within the, within, within the framework or regulatory framework, which they're still trying to figure out. And yeah. so the, and I would argue, frankly, it's always the problem with antitrust is that there's just no regulatory framework in place for these organizations. So the easy way to do it is, hey, let's just bust them up. Right. So speaking, speaking of Microsoft, uh, you know, there's, of course, now a lot of discussion about the notion of Microsoft potentially acquiring TikTok. And many, including uh, Bill Gates himself, have suggested that that would be uh, a disaster uh, for Microsoft. So what's your take on, on that opportunity and how might history be a guide for following through on that kind of an acquisition? Is that an opportunity for Microsoft or should they be running, running for the hills on that? Well, first of all, I'm sorry, but I would never bet against Bill Gates. I mean, <laughs> I mean, remember, this is a guy that told us to be on many years ago to be alert for a global pandemic. But having said that, um, look, uh, the way I would look at it, I was looking at history, I, I would pick up the phone and call Rupert Murdoch and say, tell me about MySpace. How'd that <laughs> work out for you? Now, this looks so much like MySpace to me. It looks like it's too late. It's not, it's not your thing. You're trying to get inside. I know, I know they've got a game box and all that stuff, but that's not their strength. They have done such a terrific job in taking on the, you know, the, the, the cloud and the web services and, and the business. It's, they've done a terrific job there, right? So why would they ever, ever? I would call, and it, but it's the same thing. They're late movers. There's a, you know, yes, granted, granted, they're, they, they're doing really, really well. But what Rupert found when he bought MySpace, and by the way, let's add another one. I would also call Verizon, ask them how they did with AOL and Yahoo. When, when you've got existing entrepreneurial hot companies like this, and there are another two or three being started that look just like them, including one from Facebook, the last thing you should be doing the last thing you should be doing is getting in that business because I promise you they'll be exiting that business at a hell of a loss. With, and by the way, the government won't give them their money back that they had to give the government, which is ridiculous in its own right. But the, 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 they, will, they will be writing that off in no time. I know, I know they, they, they've got great technology. They could keep it stable, but they, that's not their business. They, yeah. they, they're not in that business. So Bill Gates is absolutely right. And, and frankly, I would argue, let the, this is against the antitrust uh, uh, background, let the free market figure this one out. I honestly think they're going to end up where they need to end up, and Microsoft ain't the place for them to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Microsoft at this point, you know, it, it's kind of like they're they're almost like the GE of of tech companies now, and you know, they're you know they're 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 old they're old tech industrial in that way, you know. Um, so that I think that that makes good sense. So, all right, man. Well, good to talk to you as always, and uh, stay safe. And uh, we'll talk in a couple of weeks. All right, man. You too. Talk soon. All right, that's our episode. Thanks again to Ed Temke and to Bruce. Hang in there, be safe, take care of one another, and we'll be back with a new episode soon.